Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On August 19th, 2003, the United Nations headquarters in Iraq at the Canal Hotel in Baghdad was hit with a truck bomb. At least 22 people lost their lives in this attack, including the UN's top official in Iraq, Sergio Vieira de Mello. This was the worst attack against the UN in the organization's history. And in subsequent years, August 19th has been commemorated at the United Nations as World Humanitarian Day, in which the sacrifices of humanitarian workers are honored. This year, of course, marks the 15th anniversary of the attack, and so I wanted to take a moment to reflect on how that attack changed the United Nations. On the line with me to discuss this very question is Ambassador Elizabeth Cousins. She knew many of the victims of this attack, having worked with the UN in the Middle East. She's a former top-ranking official at the U.S. mission to the United Nations and is now the deputy CEO of the United Nations Foundation. We kick off discussing her experiences the day of the bombing and then have a broader conversation about how this terrible event forever changed how the UN operates around the world. For those who want to learn more about the attack on the Canal Hotel in 2003, I strongly encourage you to read the book Chasing the Flame by Samantha Power. This was Samantha Power's biography of Sergio Vieira de Mello, and it spends a lot of time discussing that attack and its implications for the UN around the world. And now here is my conversation with Ambassador Elizabeth Cousins. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, in a way, I feel like I met my husband because of Sergio Vera de Mello. Um, He recruited my husband, Bruce, into the UN. He was his first boss, Um, and that's part of how... um, Uh, I ended up meeting my husband, um, and it's part of why we ended up working in the UN together in the Middle East, in fact. We had had just returned from the Middle East barely a year uh, before the Canal Hotel uh, bombing. And it's a very tight circle of of friends and colleagues at the UN who all worked in the Middle East in various ways um, together. So this is a very, uh, it's a very personal experience for all of us who who worked for the UN in that region and, of course, lost friends and loved ones. And, and I should say, my, my condolences uh, at the outset of this conversation. I, I know we're talking about like a really kind of painful moment personally and, and also for the entire UN system. Um, so wh- where were you that day uh, of the bombing in, in 2003? 
So I was in New York. Uh, I was at the doctor's office. Um, we'd actually just gotten married um, a short while before. Um, we'd, as I said, just come back from the Middle East ourselves not long before that. Um, and my husband called and said there was an explosion at the Canal Hotel. And we hadn't heard from our friend Rick, who was probably the person we knew the most closely of anybody who was there that day. Um, I raced to the office. Um, I wasn't working for the UN at the time. I was working for an NGO that worked really closely with the UN. Um, everybody was sort of in shock, a bit in tears, but no one really knew what was happening. So we spent several hours, as often happens in these kinds of circumstances, just trying to get information. People are texting each other, calling each other. There's a lot of informal information coming through trying to make sense of it all. And it wasn't until, um, and of course, there was a lot of um, kind of contradictory and confused information about what was happening also to Sergio personally, which we all now know much more about. Um, uh, and it wasn't until the end of the day that we started to get more um, uh, substantiated information about what had happened to people. But it was some time that they really understood what had happened to everybody. So the kind of confirmation of who'd been injured, who'd been killed, you know, it dribbles out over time. Um, we learned about our friend Rick by the end of that day that he'd been killed almost immediately as it happened. Um, what, what do we know now about the circumstances of this bombing, who pulled it off, and you know, what, what the ultimate targets and, and goals were? Well, I think, I mean, we know that, um, we know that, uh, and my understanding of it all is that Sergio had been personally targeted, um, and the UN itself um, uh, was, became, was, a, was a broader target. This was really, you know, not the first time the UN had been targeted, but, but, but probably the biggest time the UN had been targeted. Um, uh, and, and very, very well planned um, to have maximum damage. And, you know, it's, it's also one of those things where the UN's headquarters at the time was, it was a hotel, the, the Canal Hotel, whereas, you know, the, the U.S. headquarters was in this, like, fortified green zone. And I think it was sort of deliberate that the U.N. wanted to make themselves accessible and not sort of, you know, be barricaded uh, in and, and enable Iraqis to, to come in and out. But ultimately, um, that sort of desire to want to be kind of one with the, the people, which I, I take it was Sergio Vieira de Mello's like kind of personal um, uh, style as well, uh, ultimately, you know, led to this profound vulnerability that was exploited. So this is always an incredible tension in humanitarian operations or in diplomatic efforts where the whole point is to to, to be engaged with and to know the communities in which you're working, and yet that creates a vulnerability. Um, I know just in in my own experience, having worked in um, on the Israeli-Palestinian um, peace process um, immediately before that, that was an issue we faced too at a time that was also one of deteriorating um, security conditions and humanitarian crisis where there were real policy questions about how much do you fortify your base? How much do you actually try to reach out to the community? What's the right level of risk to take? And they're really, really hard calls. Um, I think it's exactly right what you said that, you know, part of the UN's posture is to be um, 
uh, is to engage the people with whom the UN's working, whether that's as a humanitarian or as a diplomat. And of course, Sergio Vieira de Mello, having spent so much of his UN career in environments like this, uh, working with refugees, working uh, in humanitarian conditions, was very much um, someone who exemplified um, that desire to not wall uh, himself off. And I think that was widely shared by all the people who served um, in that that's it that in Iraq at the time. Um, so, so the summer of, of 2003 was actually the only time in my life that I've ever actually worked for the UN. I was, uh, an intern at, at the, uh, war crimes tribunal, the former Yugoslavia. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I mean, I remember that day, um, vividly because, um, well, it was actually the day after that, that I remember more vividly in which, you know, we all sort of had a moment of silence uh, and there were a lot of sort of staffers that were visibly emotional that day. But, uh, you know, in, in preparing for, for our conversation, I was trying to think to myself if, like, I realized the, how profound an incident that was at the time. And I, if I'm honest, I don't think I realized it at the time, um, just how, how big a deal it was and how sort of subsequently it would really sort of be a defining moment in, in UN history. So uh, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about and, and sort of talk to you with you about for, for a few minutes is how this sort of terrible incident changed the UN uh, or did it change the UN and, and sort of what are some of the, like the lasting impacts from uh, this, this attack? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you put it that way because I think that's probably the way I process it too. At the time we were all just so shocked and, and, and honestly just, just um, mourning um, the loss of people we knew and trying to process it and being there for each other and for families. I mean, I spent most of the subsequent days planning Rick's memorial in New York with a number of uh, our closest friends. And that was kind of what I focused on. And and so if you'd asked me at the time, was this going to be a sea change in how the UN does it work, its work or how it thinks about itself, I don't think I would have begun to think of it that way. But in retrospect, uh, I think it was a real turning point. Uh, it felt like a certain veil had come off. Um, now, all that said, I mean, the UN uh, and UN workers in different ways have worked in situations of risk and threat um, from the beginning of the UN. I mean, the, the one of the first UN mediators in the Middle East was assassinated in 1948. Secretary General of the UN, Doug Hammarskjöld, was um, killed in a plane crash when he was out working on the peace process in the Congo in 1961. So it's not as though it's foreign to be at risk doing the UN's work. Um, but I do think you know, 9-11, the war in Iraq, and everything that came after uh, really started to change the landscape of conflict. It started to change the landscape of humanitarian need. And the UN's still there. It's actually doing more things. All the work that the UN does on protection of civilians in different ways, that is kind of a, a mandate and a, and a role and a responsibility that really emerged, you know, during the 90s and, and of course, after after that time. Um, and and where conflicts happen, if you look at the landscape of conflict and crisis today, I mean, they're, they're almost all situations that are very penetrated by extremist groups and terrorist groups. They're very hostile environments. They're 
Um, they're non-permissive. It's not um, the kind of uh, iconic role that people think of the UN playing in these situations where they're a buffer between two warring parties. It's not that the UN may never do that again, but it's not primarily what they do now. So the kind of day job is being in the middle of those environments, and it's exceptionally tough. And I think that really really started to change around that time. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was um, kind of looking at, at other incidents as well of, of, of bombing and, and attacks on the UN and um, you know, the, like there's the, the 2007 uh, bombing of UNDP in, in Algiers. In Algiers. Uh, yeah. And, and there was the 2011 uh, bombing of the UN headquarters in, in Abuja uh, and that was actually that one was a little more proximate to me. I was I was in Cameroon at the time, following around a top oh. UN official. Um, so, uh, but you know, one thing you used to, one sort of I think interesting facet about all these is, is something you just mentioned is that extremist groups in like their ideology consider the UN to be an enemy and and a target. And you could see this in like the writings of um, uh, Zawahiri and bin Laden uh, when he was alive, you know, the, the UN was, was the problem and, and, and the UN somehow had to figure out how to, you know, learn to live in this new threat landscape. Well, that's right. And I mean, and civilians are often the currency, right, of, mm-hmm. uh, of those fights. And so just the, uh, the task of trying to protect them uh, can be seen as a hostile act by someone for whom uh, they're actually part of their war plan, however you, you know, you define that. Um, so that's exactly, that's exactly right. Peace is sometimes the enemy for some groups. Um, are, were there any direct changes in in how the UN operated, you know, pre and post the 2003 bombing? Well, that triggered, I mean, the the Canal Hotel bombing triggered a whole reassessment of the UN security infrastructure, um, the creation of an upgrading of the department that that deals with, with staff security and all kinds of additional protocols and rules, everything from Everybody has to have blast film on their windows because that is where you um, see the greatest casualties and loss of life in any explosion is actually from glass uh, um, to um, uh, the kind of protections that UN workers need to to undertake in whatever kind of mission environment they serve. And of course, I mean, as you pointed out about the Algiers uh, bombing in 2007, you think about peacekeepers, you think about people who are in those kinds of missions, but sometimes it's development workers, it's healthcare workers, it's human rights, uh, 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 officers. So, um, so it's a wider, you know, canvas of people who are in the field, um, but trying to, to strengthen all of the infrastructure of security around, uh, around that work is something the UN's been really, um, dedicated to trying to do really since this incident. Uh, but I'll also say, I mean, we're talking about when when UN workers and humanitarian workers are targeted, there are also, you know, there are also natural disasters that take life. So the Haiti earthquake was the single greatest loss of UN life in one go. It's obviously a, a national, uh, just unfathomable tragedy for Haiti, um, but over 100, 100 UN um, um, civilian police uh, and military staff uh, were were killed at that time. I mean, you you have like uh, 
these individuals, you know, UN workers who go into places of, of extreme danger, um, who put themselves on, on the line. And it seems that um, in recognition of these efforts and in commemoration of the, the 2003 attack, the UN has established this World Humanitarian Day. Um, how, I think, important of an inflection point is this annual commemoration now of, of UN humanitarian work around the world? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, having a, having a day on the calendar where we can all take a moment to reflect, uh, on, on our colleagues' service and their sacrifice when we can just be with friends. I mean, that's a day when, you know, I think everybody who, who lost somebody tries to spend with each other and, and to take time to remember. Um, uh, it's also a really important moment to be able to raise awareness about the nature of this work, but it's not just the nature of the work, it's actually the nature of the job. And so I think it's both a time to, to, to think about the service and sacrifice of people who work for the UN, but even more, it's a moment to think about why are they there in the first place? They're there in the first place because there are people who are suffering. They've been targeted by war or trapped by siege or forced to flee their homes with nothing, you know, you know, nothing but the clothes on their back. Um, they're targeted by violence and sexual assault, any number of reasons that the UN is there in the first place. So it's, I think it's important that it's called World Humanitarian Day. I think that's part of the reason because it's both about you know, the things we feel very personally about as people who've worked with and around the UN in different ways, but it's all, it's, it's really about trying to remind the world about how much work there is to do and that there are so many people out there who are in need. I mean, one point you made earlier is, is that, you know, the UN is in more places in which, um, you know, extremism is, is virulent and in which UN itself and humanitarian workers and geo workers that are not affiliated with UN and civilians are, are under uh, assault. I mean, what can like the international community do, governments, just, you know, perhaps even like well-minded people do to support the work of humanitarian workers in these vulnerable places? Like, you know, it seems that, you know, there's been this sort of sea change in the threat landscape, as you, as you said earlier, but like our response hasn't sort of been commensurate to, to the challenges that we face. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first thing is to, to say is that these are political crises, they're security crises, and they need those kinds of solutions. So the toughest, um, but most crucial thing to do is to solve them. So that's all about the efforts to find a settlement to the crisis in Syria, the effort to find a resolution to the crisis in Yemen, to dealing with the incredibly complex landscape in the Sahel. So that's the first thing. And I think having recognition that that kind of work, and it's the UN does it, but others do it. Countries do it through their own diplomats. And there's, you know, other international organizations and regional organizations do it. And in an ideal world, they're all working together at common purpose to try to produce a, a resolution of, of crises that fester. The humanitarian work around that is dealing with the horrific effects of it. So that also needs support. Ideally, it never has to be done because you're dealing with the kind of core underlying dynamics that create those, those, those just tragic conditions for, you know, civilians who are caught in the middle. Yeah. And, and one thing that always sort of, um, always, always perturbs me, I suppose, is that if you look at like the humanitarian appeals that are issued by the UN, 
they're never fully funded and and most of them are you know under 50% funded it's like a basic metric uh, uh of like whether or not we're doing what we can to support both the humanitarian workers and and the people they're trying to serve in in these situations is you know how much money we're giving them we being like the the world uh and it never seems to be commensurate with with the needs or what even just you know what they're asking for yeah, well, the, the needs are great, and it's hard to resource them. I do think you've seen and continue to see, you know, significant, you know, generosity in a sense from from donors and others who do try to resource those those needs. And it's a complicated landscape. So if you look at, for example, um, if you look at a country like Jordan um, that is host to so many refugees from Syria, and though they host them not in refugee camps, they host them in towns, they host them in communities, they've been integrated into Jordanian society and the economy. So is that a humanitarian challenge? It's partly also a development challenge. It's about supporting host countries who open their doors to people. So it's a very complex landscape of need and what kind of resources are needed and from whom. And I do think we've seen you know, in recent years, we've seen really serious work from different parts of the UN system, from organizations like the World Bank, from, you know, countries who are affected, really trying to think about how do you provide the right kind of support, both to the immediate people who are in need, but also to the communities and, and the kind of infrastructure that helps support them and help them get what they need. Um, but you're right about the appeals. It's always a bit of a challenge. Um so, so can I ask, uh, ch- changing gears a, a little bit, where or how will you be uh, commemorating on uh, August 19th this year? Well, my, my first answer is I'm probably getting my son off to school because school starts on the 20th. Yeah, no, um, me too. We've, <laughs> we've um, you know, we, our son is nine um, and we uh, talk to him a lot about the kind of work that we do and the kind of work that our friends do and, and. Um, we'll probably spend the day um, together with some friends who are now um, in in Washington, but um, some of our closest friends from the UN who now who now live here, um, um, trying to take a moment to um, to acknowledge the day and remember our friends and just you know think about the sort of work we have ahead. Um, well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for for your time and, and sharing your your thoughts and, and your remembrances. Well, thank you, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ambassador Cousins. And I hope you all have a, a meaningful World Humanitarian Day on August 19th. See you later. Bye.